Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name's Tim. And this is Chris. And I'm Adam. Oh, actually, I'm not Adam. Oh, Adam's not here tonight. <laughs> what happened to Adam? Yeah, poor Adam had a. Uh, he, Adam's a commercial airline pilot, and he uh, got called in for a flight minutes before we were about to start playing our game tonight. So, yeah, no Adam tonight. This is a two player only podcast, I guess. That feels so weird. I know. It does feel weird. So weird. All right. Well, the game we're going to be talking about and giving our hot take review on tonight is Endless Winter Paleo Americans. Is that right? Did I say that right? You you did. And uh, I would just want to point out that's another game with a colon in the name. <laughs> Endless Winter wasn't enough, huh? Okay. Yeah. The, the funny thing is, too, is like Endless Winter is a solid name, right? And then if you look at all the expansions are treated the same way. So then it says like Endless Winter and then blah, you know, like so. So I don't know why they put that on the base game. I think that's a really weird decision. I wish they wouldn't have done it. Right. And it just sounds weird. Yeah. Paleo-Americans. It's hard to say. All right. Well, before we jump into our discussion on Endless Winter Paleo-Americans, I do have some poll results to discuss. If you'd like to be a part of our weekly poll, you can follow us on Twitter at BG underscore hot takes, or you can follow us on Facebook. We have a Facebook group that you can search for and um, would love to have you come out and interact with us out on either of those platforms. The poll I asked this question, I said, how do you feel about one-time use games, legacy, escape room, et cetera, where you have to alter or damage components to play so the game can't be reset and replayed? The reason this came up, I was actually talking to a couple other content creators. We were on a um, playing a game together and just just talking. And somebody asked the question about, you know, do you like escape room games? And I was just saying how I prefer the unlock series to the exit series. Partially, I think it's a little more streamlined, and I've I've enjoyed some of the puzzles in those more. But part of it for me was that I don't feel good about cutting up the games. I feel like. The unlock is great. I can use it and then I can hand it off to someone else and they can use it or I can, you know, sell it or whatever. And exit, you you have to cut them up. You have to fold pages. They're really a one-time use only. Nobody else can get the benefit out of it. Even though I'm only going to play it once myself, I still don't, I prefer not to do that. So that's why I came up. But, you know, legacy falls into that as well, although you may get more than one play with them. But uh, the, here's, how, here's the options that I gave and then we'll hear what Chris has to say. Number one, I said, love them. And on Twitter, it was 21.3% versus Facebook said 13%. I don't mind was 35.4% on Twitter and 37% on Facebook. I prefer not to was 31.1% on Twitter and 6% on Facebook. That was a big difference. And then absolutely no was 12.1% on Twitter and 5% on Facebook. So the vast majority of people fell somewhere in the middle there. They either don't mind doing it or, or they prefer not to, but they're not didn't feel super strongly about it either way. How do you feel about this, Chris? Well, I think I fell in the majority on this one. I didn't have super strong feelings, but I do have feelings about it. And I think primarily, I think about it the same way you do. It just seems like such a waste taking something and cutting it up and throwing it away. The flip side of that coin is I really do enjoy the concept of legacy games. I like covering over things with stickers and cutting up cards and the the changes that it brings in the game. I don't like having to throw that stuff away because that seems wasteful, but I really do like that aspect of gameplay and I really enjoy legacy games. So I'm not I'm not sure how to reconcile that other than I try to limit myself to your know, relatively small number of legacy games to play. So I'm not creating a lot of waste. Yeah, I feel the same way. Now, one thing that's shifted me a little bit on this too, because I, I love legacy games. I love the experience of that, but I've had a chance to play some games that give you a legacy feel without actually requiring you to damage or destroy components. Like Scythe, uh, the Rise of Fenris, Fenris campaign was great because you still had tuck boxes with hidden information that would get revealed at certain times. You still had you know punch boards that were revealed at certain times and added mechanisms throughout the game but you didn't have to actually destroy stuff. And, and then it also left you with a, a campaign that you could reset and replay. And it was great to replay, even if you knew the surprises, but also it left you with components that you could add into the game as an expansion later on. Maracaibo by Alexander Pfister is another great example of this. There's a whole story arc that you can go through, reveal things at different times, the board changes, but they do it by just adding cards to the decks that you can play with, but also by uh, giving you these cardboard tiles that will just be set on top of the board in different places to change up the board. And a really easy mechanism to track that between games about how you left it the last time. I thought that worked really well too. So I think it's cool that some people are exploring a space where you can get that 
you know, kind of that changing environment feel without requiring you to make it unusable. I also don't mind legacy games where that, you know, you have to destroy some components, put stickers on things or whatever, as long as it leaves you with a playable game at the end. My only complaint about that with the legacy games that I've done that with is that a lot of them, they make you write on cards or write on the board or whatever. And I just hate that unfinished feel of a, of a finished legacy game. Like Clank Legacy is a great example. When that game was done, it ended up with a really cool board with like a cool game with a double sided board. You could play a variety of different ways, but man, it's so it felt unfinished. So I, I decided not to keep that and moved on to a different clank. But writing my name, writing city names, writing character names on cards, that's like my least favorite of legacy stuff anyway. So I must get some people excited because they keep bringing it in. But I could live without that part of it. I'm glad that you brought up Rise of Fenris because I think that is such a great example of doing it the proper way. And it's funny. I think the first couple of years that we were playing games together, whenever we talked about legacy games, I always brought up Rise of Fenris because I thought of it as a legacy game. It felt so much like a legacy game, even though it's not, it's a campaign, but it really does give you that legacy game feel. I'm also thinking about Star Realms Rise of Empire, which I have coming on Kickstarter, which is a legacy deck building game. And one of the options that they gave you in Star Realms Rise of Empire was to order one where you didn't actually tear up cards, you didn't have to cover over anything on cards, but you got different variations of each card so that instead of cutting one up or covering it over with stickers, you just pull out that version from the deck. So presumably, I don't know for sure because I haven't played the game yet, but presumably you could play with any of the versions of a particular card if you cared to, if you were using it in non-legacy mode. It means that you just basically got shipped a huge deck of cards that you may or may not ever use, but it does <laughs> let you reset it. And that's kind of what I like about that too, is that you, you know, even when I played through a campaign, my favorite legacy games or campaign experience I played, I want to go back to it, maybe not immediately, but I want, I wished I could go back and replay that campaign and relive that experience again. So although there's some fun in the reveal in campaign games or legacy games as, as to when you didn't know something was coming. I, I still find it fun to go back to them. And uh, even if you kind of know the story and, and get to enjoy it with other people that didn't play and see how they react to the reveal and stuff like that. So yeah, I'm all on board with legacy type experiences that don't require destruction of the game or reusable games that you can finish the legacy campaign, but are still fun to play afterwards. My city is an interesting one because, you know, the Reiner Knizia game, because that is a legacy game. And the campaign, I think is the most interesting part about it. Now they have a an end game mode where you flip the boards over and you can play the final game. But I think that game, I don't know, it's not that exciting if you don't get the enjoyment of kind of like playing it out over the campaign and just seeing how things evolve over it. So not sure I would ever play that one post campaign. Although nice that we can do that one on board game arena. That's I mean, right. You don't have to do any kind of destruction. You don't have to put any stickers anywhere, but you still get that same experience. Board game arena is a fantastic way to play a, a legacy or legacy style game. I'd love to see more up there. Of course, probably not a super high motivator for people to go out and buy the games if they played through the campaign yeah. on BGA, but I don't know. I might. Well, here's what some of our listeners had to say over on Facebook. Stephen Dixon said, I have not had the chance to play any legacy escape room games yet. The idea of destroying a piece of a game frightens me, but I've heard the argument that many games get played a small amount of time. So what's the difference? Yeah. I mean, th that's kind of true, except you still then have to dispose of it right you're, st you're still you can't give it away you can't sell it to somebody else you, you can't like let that get additional life which most board games honestly like how many board games that were not legacy have you ever thrown away like zero never right <laughs> none yeah because even if i don't want it anymore somebody else will want it somebody else will take it so you know i don't like these legacy games that you have to destroy you do have to throw them into a, a landfill right or, or they may get recycled to some extent but how much of that actually happens who knows chris stanton on twitter said i'm not a fan at all i don't like single-use plastics either i view them much both much the same and then chrissy pesky said i prefer not to at the very least we are careful with waste and carbon footprint and avoid those as a general rule our kids are even more vocal than we are and have talked us out of buying a legacy game that we knew we would like. Raising little activists stinks sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally, Chrissy. I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I, I sometimes regret giving my daughter some ethical uh, backing because now she calls me out every time I slip up a little bit. They're so much better than we are. <laughs> yeah, they are. And then Rob, uh, Black Board Gamer Alliance, he said, depends on how good the experience is. I played a few games like that with my wife that easily provided 20 bucks worth of one-time entertainment. And yeah, you know, I would definitely not say that the the exit games that you destroy are not of value. I mean, you can definitely get a night's enjoyment out of one of those games and it's worth the price. Again, for me, it's just I wish I could pass it on after 
that's the main the main drawback. All right, well, let's move on past that topic and jump into our feature game for the night. Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. I had to pause to remember what the, the subtitle was on that one. Endless Winter is a worker placement game where one to four players lead Ice Age era clans over multiple generations as they transition from nomadic hunters and gatherers to prosperous tribal societies. Endless Winter plays out over the course of four rounds or generations in which players will place their workers and take various actions and gather benefits. This all takes place in several locations. There's a central board that contains round and score trackers as well as action spaces, player order track, and a shared market. Also shared among players are boards containing animals to hunt and an idle track that provides benefits for conducting rituals, a megalith board that provides benefits for building stone structures, and a hex-based map on which players will place encampments and villages. Finally, each player also has their own individual board that represents their tribe and their village. The bottom line is that this sucker has a lot of boards to keep track of. Now, at the beginning of each round, players may use culture cards to perform special actions. Then it's time for the main event, placing the workers. Players have several options when it comes time to place a worker. Players can use the oddly named initiate or initiate. I'm not sure what it is, but anyway, this action allows you to bring new members into the clan, providing stronger and more specialized abilities and getting rid of older and weaker cards. That's done through purchasing tribe member cards to add to the player's deck and burying or scrapping old cards. If you think this sounds suspiciously like deck building, then you'd be correct, which is great, it's always a favorite of mine. Players can use the develop action to gain culture cards and sacred stones that confer various benefits. And the migrate action lets players set up camps, move them around, and develop multiple camps into villages. And finally, the hunt action lets players gain animal cards that can be saved for points or spent for benefits. And that's just the basics. We didn't even get into all the other boards that the players can use to build megaliths, conduct rituals, and the like. But we'll get more into that during the discussion. At the end of each round, an eclipse occurs, and during that eclipse, players will reset the turn order based on the amount of labor spent by each player. And then players will go through what is essentially an income and upkeep phase. After the fourth round and its accompanying eclipse, the final scores are tallied and the player with the most points will be the winner. Endless Winter was designed by Stan Kordonsky and is published by Fantasia Games. All right. Thanks for that description, Chris. Uh, This was both of our first play tonight. We played a three-player game, played on Tabletop Simulator, so a typical platform for us since we are not geographically located nearby each other but uh got a chance to look at some pictures of the physical production so we'll we'll be talking about some of that as well later but let's uh talk about the gameplay and mechanisms of endless winter paleo americans uh there's a lot going on here a lot of mechanisms and uh when i when i watched a rules video and read the rule book on this i thought wow this seems like a lot of different things going on but uh, there were some pretty interesting ones. I'm going to start with the action selection mechanism. Essentially, this is a kind of worker placement game. If you want to uh, argue the uh, actual description of what worker placement is, I think you'd have a good case to argue it here. But essentially, there are four general actions you can take on your turn. Five, if you count the rest action. But you're going to place one of your three workers. One of your workers is your tribe leader, and they have a special ability that may trigger depending on which action you take. But what's cool about these actions is that you place it on this space, and then there are three, two to three things you're going to get to do on that, on that round, on that turn. The first one is an infinite one. You can spend any number of a specific type of resource to do any number of that type of action, depending on what it is. And there, there are a variety of costs, but you know it's something you can do as many times as you can afford it. And then the second is something that you can only do once, usually, maybe a little bit more powerful. The third action, if you're the first player to have placed there in that round, then you get an extra bonus or bonus action. And uh, yeah, I thought it was fun. It, it added some interesting tension. It, everyone got to do all the actions, or, you know, all four of the actions if they needed to in a round, which is important because they're all you know critical actions and you don't have that many rounds to do this. But if you're the first one to go to one, you know, you're incentivized to do something special. And I thought it was fun. And it was also fun with, uh, you know, kind of deciding like, hey, do I rush and do the one that my leader can do so I get all the benefits and he gets the benefit? Or do I really want to get something else first, beat someone else to it, but then my leader action isn't going to do as well. And there was one round in this game where, you know, we were playing a three player game. Theoretically, you'd expect only the first player to ever get two of the bonus actions. But for some reason, Steve and Chris both decided to 
repeat actions and I managed to get two bonuses even though I wasn't first player. That was super exciting. So I don't know. It was it, it was fun. It was fun, uh, fun tension there. Had one little drawback I'll I'll speak to, but I'll pass it off to Chris. You got two two of the final man, how did we let you get away with that? <laughs> I thought that was so much fun. There was only four decisions, really like you said five if you count the rest action. So there's only really four decisions to make, but they were so fun because you had these multiple options within each action. You compared it at one point when we were playing to terracotta army and i completely agree but here's something that i found really interesting about this game and it was almost unique in terms of worker placement games that we've played i never ever ever say this the economy was so generous in this game i almost never felt like i couldn't do something because i completely lacked a resource I almost never felt like I had to throw away an action because I didn't have the prerequisites that I would need or that it wouldn't benefit me in some way. I felt like almost every time I had the opportunity to do something or wanted to do something, I could do it. In that sense, it made this game feel like really sandboxy because there's so many different directions you can go off because you weren't as limited by the resources. You were really just kind of limited by your strategy. At least that's how it felt to me. Um, But I also wanted to touch for a minute on the culture cards. And I I quickly alluded to those in the game description, but I thought they added something really fun to it. With the culture cards, before you even got to the point where you were placing your worker and doing the, the worker placement action spaces, you got to play these culture cards. And the first time you played one, you could play it, not for free, you had to pay for whatever you were doing, but you got to play the card without having to pay anything extra. Then if you wanted to play additional cards, then you had to start getting rid of other cards out of your hand. Like, so if you wanted to play a second culture card, you'd have to discard a card that might otherwise be useful to you. But they really created some interesting options because each one of those cards let you do something that was often similar to the things that you would do in the worker placement spaces. So if you wanted to scrap a card or you wanted to get some tools or you needed food or whatever it was you needed, there's very good chance that you could have had a culture card that would let you do that. So it's almost like having a fourth worker to play. And maybe that's one more reason why it just felt to me like a very generous economy. No, I did not feel that at all. Hmm. I was constantly struggling for resources. Many times I had to skip uh, an action I wanted to take first to go to a different action that would let me get some of the resources I needed. In fact, in the final round of the game, you only have three workers to play. So basically three turns. And I had to take rest actions on two of those turns because all of the cards in my hand required um, tools And the actions that I wanted to take that would have benefited me in any significant way required tools. And I did not have a way to get a tool. Hmm. It's interesting. And maybe because of the strategies we went down, you went really heavy towards the the hunting strategy. And so you always had animals you could kind of tap and get resources out of. And I did not do that very much. So, um, you know, may have just been a different strategy. But I I think there is definitely an opportunity for you to run into some walls here. In fact, I really closed myself off there at the end. Now, I want to mention back to, I was talking about these action options and they give you a whole bunch of benefits and they're fun to do. The one drawback is that there's a lot of downtime between turns. Yeah. You know, when you're taking your turn, super fun, lots of decisions. Do I do this first? And then I got to get this stuff all organized. Okay. Then I'm going to do this. But then, you know, the other players, although there is some decent player interaction in the game, it really didn't matter too much, you know, what, what other players were doing on their turn for how you were going to decide your turn and stuff like that. So it, it felt a, a little slow between turns sometimes. Not too bad, though. I, I, I didn't hate it, but it was like Terracotta Army in that way where, you know, there's just so many decisions that somebody makes on their turn. You're waiting around a little while. Yeah, I, you speak the truth there. That was pretty rough, especially by the end of the game when we're really taking more time and thinking through those turns, trying to make sure that we're optimizing to get just the right combination of stuff it started getting a little bit draggy. I think it'd be better in real life because like you said, we were playing it on tabletop simulator. So you were kind of scrolling around a screen trying to see where things were and whatnot. And if you were sitting there at a table full of people, then you could be chatting with your fellow gamers. When we're sitting here on online trying to do it, it's a little bit tougher to do that. But I definitely felt that. It definitely impacted the experience for me. It didn't kill it. Yeah, agreed. I want to circle back to the deck building. You talked a little bit about the culture cards, which were awesome because they were varied. Everyone started with a couple in their hand or maybe just one in their in their starting deck. But the, the ones that came out in era one, as well as then after the second round in era two, they were all unique. They were all interesting and cool abilities. And it was fun to add that variety. But this deck building was unique in a lot of ways. It wasn't just the culture cards you could add, but you could also add tribe cards 
cards and they were multi-use cards. You can spend them on the turn for the what work points or, or action points or whatever they're called, which is how you do a lot of your actions. Or if you saved them until the eclipse phase at the end of the round, you got an extra bonus for it. But also the eclipse phase was pretty cool. You know, you're, you're doing this deck building thing. Uh, you were not limited to five cards in your hand at the start of your round. You could save some over and then draw up a bunch more. But then in the eclipse phase, this is the basically after everybody finishes their third turn, then they're going to put cards face down that they want to leave for the eclipse phase. And they, they do two things. They could have benefits on them that are going to trigger in the eclipse phase, but they also have these action points or worker points. And whoever reveals the most worker points during the eclipse phase ends up first player in the next round. That's cool, right? First player is great. And it's probably extra important in this game because of those bonuses you get. But the other really neat thing about it is that after you decide turn order, each player in turn order is going to get a, a particular benefit or something below it if they want to. And so getting that bonus right off the bat of, you know, after the turn order is decided, that was super fun. And then all the decisions that get made during the eclipse phase, how bonuses pay out, how the tents and the, the bonuses out on the area control board pay out, you know, all that stuff triggered in that order. So it, it ended up really feeling exciting. You know, even going through that kind of end round cleanup was it was a fun part of the game. It was a fun phase. Yeah, for sure. And you had mentioned a second ago about the different strategies. And I want to go back to that for a second, because I thought that was a real hallmark of this game. There were so many different ways you could go. And as I'm thinking through it, I you know, maybe you're right. Maybe the reason why the game felt very different to me I took a very different strategy. I was going for animals and nobody was fighting me for the animals because you can get these animals as part of a set collection mechanism and the set collection gives you end game points or you can use them for resources, for food, for tools, for abilities to move up the uh, ritual track. You can also do that. And so I was kind of able to run the table and take whatever animals I wanted because nobody was fighting me for that and then, you know, kill them, eat them, make tools out of them, whatever. And you guys were going very strong into the area control, the hex board. And I don't know, I honestly, I wasn't paying that close attention to what you guys were doing there because I wasn't really engaged in it. But it felt like there was a lot of battling back and forth and a lot putting a lot of resources and trying to get the encampments out and getting the villages out. So, you know, maybe that was a big driver for for the way you were feeling about the economy of the game. And that's not even to mention the megaliths. There's these things called megaliths. It actually reminded me a little bit of the uh, tiles, the pyramid tiles in Teotihuacan. Mm -hmm. yep. And yeah, you're, you're, you're putting tiles down either to get a benefit underneath that tile or as you build up higher, you're getting points. So there's different things you can do there. I don't think we really dug into that at all. I mean, there's certainly stuff you could have done if you really wanted to focus on the megaliths, then you could, you could be doing that. But there were so many different things you could do and you could have people going off in completely different directions and almost never even touching each other in terms of, you know, strategic uh, interaction. Yeah, it was great that there was a lot of different ways to go. And you're absolutely right. Now, let me talk about that area control board a little bit, because this was actually, I think, a pretty clever part of a euro. There was a basically one of the actions you could take was to build settlements or little tents out on this main area control board, and they'd all start in the middle. But then part of that action is that you could also spend action points to move those settlements or encampments around to different spaces on the board. Why you wanted to do that is that during the eclipse phase, which is the end of every round, whoever had an area, a majority of power in that specific hex is going to get the bonus that's printed on them. And they were sometimes pretty strong bonuses. Sometimes they were just a tool or a point, but some of them were giving you a whole megalith uh, building action or a uh, movement up the totem track or whatever. So you could spread out pretty quickly and get a lot of stuff. But one of the other neat things about this, and this reminded me of Soul, and we talked about this a little bit last days of a star, but with Soul, you know, you would have to move your ships around and put them in a certain structure uh, shape or whatever, and then you could convert them to a different type of structure. Well, Endless Winter did the same thing. If you got tents in a triangle on three different hexes, then you could take those off. You have to, it's part of that particular action, but then you'd have to spend food, take those three tents off and put one of these big old huts down in the middle of it. But then you had two points of area control in each of the adjacent hex tiles. So that was cool. Beyond that, you also get an, the, like an eclipse bonus for every hex tile you've taken off your board, which was more cards that you, that you get to draw for that round. And that more cards is more fun decisions to make, more fun actions to take. So Chris, even though you didn't get too active there and you ended up winning the game, you got, you definitely did great with the, uh, you know, the set collection points in it. But that was a really fun part of the game. And it was fun sometimes too, where, you know, the last action someone takes, they move another tent in and just take away that area, you know, majority from you. Fun there, 
only two of the three of us really played around in there that much. If all three of us had been, it would have been really tight. And I think in a four-player game, even though it adds a few more hexes, it would be really tight. And you could see it, it would that part of it reminds me a little bit of Beyond the Sun, where the space board, right? People can mess around out there and take territories back and forth. And then the people that are just building technologies are going to end up winning because they're using all the resources just to get those points. <laughs> and this can probably do the same thing. You know, you have to pay attention and decide, like, wait, do I want to be fighting with everybody? for this kind of zero sum game or do I want to focus where I can actually make points? But if somebody doesn't, you know, if nobody's fighting you for those areas, they can be really valuable and you can get a lot out of them yeah. over the course of the game. And, and I did win using the animals, but man, I actually feel like I missed out on something not engaging with you guys on the hex board, the area control part of it, because not only did it provide you the benefits from actually having your you know, having the area control, but that was also the way you did your engine building. Mm-hmm. By taking those buildings off, by taking the tents off, you were also opening up spaces and providing income every round. And I was getting almost nothing in income. You guys were racking up tools and meat and all these other things. And I was like, I think I got one tool per round. So yeah, yeah I just, I feel like I missed out on some of the fun there. Yeah, right on. A, a one yeah. last thing I want to mention about this game that it was another place where it just brought so much joy to my heart. And that was in the deck building. Well, first of all, I love deck building. And second of all, the thing I like most in deck building is scrapping crap cards. And there were so many ways to do it in this game. I felt like I had so many opportunities to manipulate my deck, to get rid of the garbage, make sure I had exactly the cards that I wanted to have, add good new cards, get rid of the old ones. Oh, man, that is my favorite part of deck building in this game. It was so satisfying because by the end, I felt like I had this perfect custom deck that was exactly the way I wanted to. And I played so many deck building games where I'm just like, okay, I'm drawing the same crap cards over and over again because there's limited opportunities to scrap. But in this game, there were so many. I just, I thought that was great. I love that. All right, well, let's jump into the theme and production of Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. Starting with, I'm going to talk about the artwork first. This game does have quite a visual presence to it. And I think a lot of that's brought up by the Miko's art. Now, the Miko is the artist well-known for the West Kingdom trilogy and the South Seas trilogy by Garfield Games. Yeah, he brings that really unique style here. I would say it's a little bit less abstract, a little less cartoony than it is in those games. And I think that's great. I, I, I think it's really cool artwork. His character artwork is really strong. But if you look at a lot of these culture cards too, they're just such a vibrant background. Some of them have a lot of white because of course there's snow, but some of them have, you know, lots of just bright colors, fire. Everything about the artwork here really worked for me. Yeah, I love the artwork too. I thought it was a lot of fun. And I am generally not a huge fan of of that art in the like the Wayfarers and in the was it the Paladins? Is it the Viscount? So yeah, the whole West Trilogy, West Kingdom Trilogy. Yeah, I didn't love it there, but I think like you said, it felt a little bit less cartoony. There's also also one thing I noticed that I just found interesting and it just sort of delighted me because I noticed that there was a picture of a character on each board. There were female characters wearing very climate appropriate clothes. They were all wearing the furs and the big coats and bundled up. And in this case, it was the guy who was dressed inappropriately. <laughs> <laughs> There's this warrior dude who was out there, you know, like, I guess running around on the ice flows with like no shirt on. <laughs> OK, well, turnabout is fair play. I thought that was cool and I appreciated it. He's the Ice Age streaker running around out there. I guess I guess so. <laughs> but yeah, the, the art was great. I loved it. So, like you said, so vibrant. So there, now I'm going to talk about the one thing that I really didn't like about the production here. There's a few different little areas that you're dealing with. The way that they did this with this production is they put together a whole bunch of different boards or areas where things are just set out without a board. So you have one board that just holds the four action spaces and the point tracker. That's your main board in this thing. And then they just have like three card rows below that. So you got like 20... Uh, 15 cards laid out underneath it in different rows and, and stacks and stuff. And then there's another board. I think it's the temple track or whatever, but these two tracks you can move up to get endgame scoring bonuses. And then you've got these random hex tiles that are set up over on a different section that aren't on a board at all. And then you've got this uh, this megalith little area, which is kind of like a, basically a, an adjustable board that you know you set up in different configurations every time you play and then you build the megaliths on there. So the whole presence of this game is just cluttery. It's just a lot of stuff going on everywhere. And that bugs me. I wish it wasn't like that. Now, when we played on Tabletop Simulator, there was a, 
it looked like a big old play mat in the middle. And then these things all had their own spaces and that worked better for me. I don't know if that play mat is actually something that exists as a physical component or something that was available in the Kickstarter, but I think this game needs a play mat. And I really honestly think it, it, they should have put a bigger board in here. They could have put a standard size board and covered three or four of those components and made it a much more pleasant experience and just you know, the clutter bugs me. And this, this game is just, it's clutter everywhere. It's all kinds of different random things set up everywhere that are going to get bumped and jostled. And, you know, it, depending on the playing area you're on, sometimes they're going to be hard to see and they're going to be, you know, you're going to have to look at the Aunt May's ugly tablecloth underneath all this stuff spread everywhere. It's going to take you out of the theme. So I really wish games would not do these, just a whole bunch of separate disparate boards. Man, I'm with you. There was like eight of them. And if it wasn't for that background on Tabletop Simulator, it would have driven me to distraction. So if that is that that playmat is not a real thing, it ought to be a real thing because otherwise this just looks like it's all over the place. I'm trying to think how many there were. So you had, yeah, there's it was, anyway, I won't count them. There's a whole bunch of them and it was just, it was a little bit too much, which is a particular shame considering how nice the rest of the production is on this. The art is good. You've got these cool little minis. Even the meeples are really fun looking and they look like Paleo-Americans and you know, they don't look like standard meeples. And so there's so much good stuff going on that it just seems like a bummer that it could be ruined by something as simple as just not having the board set up, having a good configuration for the board. Yeah, totally. And now you mentioned the meeples and minis, and that's actually another slight complaint I have. Now I know this was a Kickstarter and you can't sell Kickstarters without minis, but this does not need minis. And I, I always feel like it's really weird in a Euro where they have a mix of plastic and then wooden you know, wooden meeples. And even the the huts and the tents are the same way. The tents are look to be wood and the, the huts are like, um, are, are plastic. So personally, I don't like that. Now, Scythe was one exception. For some reason, that's always worked just fine for me in that game. I don't know why that is. But uh, in this game, I really wish they would have just stuck with meeples personally. What, what do you think, Chris? Do you, do you like that there's there's minis in here, even though generally it's a more Euro style production? I don't mind the fact that there was meeples and I don't even mind the fact that they cross over and there's both different kinds. What I do mind is that it seems so incongruous because they did that. Like you could have some like there was these very cartoony minis based on the artwork from the leaders. And that was very filled with, you know, personality. And then there was the meeples, which looked cool, but really had no individuality or personality. So that just, I don't know, that struck me as a little bit off, but but I really, I like minis. I, I, they don't bother me. I think it was enjoyable. Are the um, are the villages, are those minis as well in the real production? The pictures I'm looking at are, but again, I know there was a Kickstarter version of this, so I don't know how unique that is, you know, with the retail version versus the Kickstarter. I think all the pictures I'm seeing online are all the Kickstarter version. So they may or may not yeah. be minis in the, uh, the, the retail production of it. But we got to talk about these dual layer player boards that I'm also seeing that oh, are awesome. that's right. Uh, not only do they have little slots for all of the, the stone things you can put on there, um, slots for all of the different components as you're pulling them off and resource tracks, but even nice slots on the sides of the board for where you're going to you know, have your draw pile and your discard pile slots at the bottom for where your, your kind of graveyard is, as well as where you're going to put your set collection animals. Liked all that stuff about this player board. And other than the little uh, complaints that I had about the the boards and the the weirdness of having minis and meeples, otherwise this production is beautiful. Yeah, it's just it's colorful. I like a nice, colorful, bright, vibrant production, and especially on a euro. And this one really hits like that. Yeah, I did not think about those multi layer boards because we were playing it online. But oh man, I, this is absolutely a game that would benefit from that because on your player board you have so many things going on. You have the place where you're tracking your resources. You have the place where you're putting your uh, stone, I forget what they were called, the big the stones that you put there that have endgame scoring on them. You have your place for your villages that that slot in there and then come out and give you income. So there's so many things happening on your player board that having those spaces to put them and not be flopping around, I think would be wonderful. Yeah, totally. All right, well, let's ask our final question, and that is, would we request to play this game again? And my answer is a solid absolutely yes. I really had fun with this game. I think it's a really interesting game. In fact, I'm I I'm I'm shocked that I liked it as much as I did. When I watched the how to play video on this and read the rule book, I was like, there's too much stuff going on. There's no way this game is going to be fun or flow smoothly. 
But as soon as we started taking our first turn and I started looking at the options in that my starting hand, even in fact, the way that the starting resources and characters are set up and, you know, slight differences, a slight asymmetry that starts out there. It just started out fun. And there are so many fun options. The game has a lot of mechanisms going on here. And it's got a lot of different little areas that you're playing with. Somehow they all work together really well. And once we got through the first couple turns in the first round, everything made sense. There was no you know, serious confusion, little iconography that we had to double check on some of the end game scoring. But beyond that, it just all made sense and it all worked well. And I would love to get back involved with this and play around with that deck building some more. Play around with the set collection. I don't even like set collection most of the time, but I liked it here because you could take that action and get those animals and you could choose to build up a set if you if you were running down that path. But you could also just, you know, kill them and, and get the resources out of them. And all of them had unique resources. So playing around with those animals was actually really fun, even if it, you know, even if it was towards the set collection part. So every little mini game that was included here worked and I enjoyed it. I'm, I'm surprised by that, but I, I really like this game and I'd love to play it again. Well, the answer for me is heck yeah. I, I actually really like this game and I don't, I don't know if it's maybe because Adam's not here and so that gravitational pull isn't, you know, pulling me away from agreeing with you, but I totally agree with you on this one. <laughs> and I, I actually felt very similarly too in terms of my attitude going into this, because when I first looked at this, I thought, wow, that looks really freaking complex. Then I watched the rules video and I was like, wow, this is really freaking complex. Then I watched that same rules video again, a second time. And I'm like, I'm going to hate this game. It's too freaking complex. But we sat down and almost immediately it clicked into place. And I liked looking at it. I felt drawn into it. I, I enjoyed feeling virtually feeling the pieces, seeing the way the pieces moved around. I liked the art. I liked looking at it and enjoying the aesthetic experience of it. And the rules just ended up falling into place. Like, I still can't explain why it made sense the way that it did. Even the iconography, the iconography in this thing at first, I thought this is going to be miserable because there's it's language independent. So it's, it's all iconography. Even those really abstract pieces of iconography by the end of the game, I thought made perfect sense. So I went into it with a really bad attitude. I went into it expecting to dislike this game or at least find it highly frustrating. And I ended up walking away thinking, how much fun it was. And I would love to play it again. I would actually consider if I played it again once or twice and enjoyed it as much actually getting this game yeah. because it's it's pretty damn cool. Yeah, I felt the same way. In fact, I, I think this is a great opportunity to call out um, friend of the show, Board Game Chatterbox. Leanne is a wonderful friend of our show and she sent us a Amazon gift card at Christmas time over the holidays. And she sent an Amazon gift card and said, I hope you guys you know, buy buy some games on Amazon and, and something you enjoy. We talked about, I, I told Chris and Adam that she had sent that. And we talked about, what, what are we going to do with this Amazon gift card? And Adam recommended, why don't we buy a game that we all want to play? And that'll be the prize for our next board game Hot Takes Con. So that whoever ends up winning for the weekend gets to take it home with them. And I've been racking my brain about what that's going to be. Because, you know, we've all played games that we some of us like, some of us don't or whatever. And right now, this is my top pick. I think this would be a fantastic game for us to get before the con, get a chance to play it at the con and have whoever wins take this home. Because I feel like this is a a game that is going to be fun in anybody's collection. I think we're all going to enjoy it. I think Adam's going to like this game too, even though he didn't get to make it tonight. This is my pick. I definitely hope to play it again and maybe we'll be playing it in just a couple months at our next con. I'll second that. I think that's a great idea. What a perfect pick. I can't think of a better one. All right, cool. Well, that will wrap up our thoughts on Endless Winter Paleo-Americans. We're going to jump into a Endless Winter themed cocktail as well as some games that have been on our table right after this. Welcome back. Chris, what do you have for us this week? I've been away from the drink segment for a little while, and it just feels so good to be back. So here we go. I live in Oregon, where right now it actually feels like it's been an endless winter. But what could be better for chasing away the chill than a nice warm drink, right? Of course, there's plenty of options out there, tea, coffee, you know, hot chocolate. But if you're looking for something with a little more potency for your midwinter game night, I've got just the drink for you. So Endless Winter is about the, quote, paleo-Americans, but for this drink, I took inspiration from a slightly more recent chapter of America's past, and that's the colonial period. 
In colonial New England, rum was king. And personally, I'm a huge rum fan, so anything that's got rum in it, I'm all about. And this stuff was everywhere. So it's no surprise that the folks suffering those cold New England winters would look for some creative ways to take advantage of this plentiful rum supply to warm themselves up on a cold winter night. And the answer was hot buttered rum. What a classic this is. Oh, man, even just the name of this delicious drink conjures up images of sitting by the fireplace, feet up, sipping a warm mug of this sweet drink. Now, you may not have a fireplace, but you can still drink the rum. And this drink makes it easy because it's got just a few simple ingredients. There's lots of different variations, but the one that I've always enjoyed involves butter, brown sugar, and some spices to liven things up. And the nice part is that with the possible exception of the rum, depending on your drinking habits, all of the ingredients are likely to be things that you already have laying around the house. So Google it, take a look at the recipes, see what looks fun, but give this one a try the next time you're playing Endless Winter or just enjoying a rest by the fire. It'll make the Ice Age a lot more comfy. Well, right here in Phoenix, Arizona, it has felt like the Ice Age here. We've been in the 40s and 50s the last couple of weeks, and I definitely need something to warm me up. So some hot buttered rum seems like the perfect idea do it man all right well let's jump into some games we've been playing all right so the first game i'm going to talk about tonight is a new game by vladimir suchi and this was a co-design with ross arnold but uh, this was published by vladimir suchi's publishing company delicious games the game is called woodcraft what can i say about woodcraft first of all i saw the cover of this box and i did absolutely not want to play this game (laughs) it's it's i don't know something about the artwork just doesn't feel finished It, it doesn't feel good to me But I do have to say, before I even jumped into the gameplay here, that once you get into the components of this, the same artwork put in a smaller form on the cards that are used, the object cards, the characters that you can recruit, it works great within the production. So for some reason, this is one of my all-time least favorite box covers, but the actual production, playing with the components, looking at it was all fantastic. So what is Woodcraft? Woodcraft is a Euro-style game, and it's an order fulfillment game. And uh, when I hear that, I generally think, Oh, that doesn't sound like too much fun, right? You got to have some things. You got to collect resources and turn them in four points at the end of the game. Woodcraft does it in such a unique way, though, in that I don't think I will ever want to play a different order collection game. This was a super fun experience. The idea, the concept is, is that you're, you know, woodcrafters and people are, are, you know, asking you to create things for them. They want you to make things. They want you to make a wooden chair. They want you to make a sled, whatever it is. The resources that you're playing around with here, there's a number, but some of them are dice. And these dice represents types of wood. The dice are going to be green, yellow, or brown. And the pip value on those dice are going to represent the size of the wood. So there's a couple ways to get these dice. You may purchase them. There's an action selection mechanism that I'll get into, but you can pick up the dice that way. You can also grow them. You have these pots in your little player board and you you can build additional ones, but with certain actions, you can actually plant this wood. So it would start as a, a one pip wood, but then eventually it will turn into like a three pip wood or a five pip wood. But then sometimes the goods you need to make, they need to be smaller than the wood you've got, right? So if you've got this big hunk of wood, but you need to make a little toy horse, how do you do that? Well, to fill that order, you have to have a one pip green wood and you have to have a two pip yellow wood. How do you do that? Well, in your factory, you have a saw. And so if you take the action that lets you put wood on the saw, you take that four pip you know, brown dice and you can cut it into two pip brown dice. So this is one of the things you're doing is you're manipulating these dice. There's some other tools that are in your little player board, little factory that you can add on to that you can upgrade that will allow you to basically manipulate these dice, whether it's doubling them while it's converting them to other types of wood, etc. But the puzzle of actually playing around with these dice and trying to turn the wood into the size that you need, into the shape that you need, into the type of wood that you need was so much fun. It was such a blast. So that was the number one reason why this didn't feel like a traditional order fulfillment game. You weren't just collecting resources and then spending them. You were taking these resources and then really manipulating them. You were really having to craft these dice into what you needed with some very tight actions, a game that ran very quickly, felt like you never had enough to do. The second part that I love about it, though, was that with all of these things that you fulfilled, all of these orders that you fulfilled, you didn't just get points for it. You got a variety of really interesting and fun bonuses. And sometimes it was like immediate bonuses. 
A lot of it, though, was movement up a couple different tracks, which were like income bonuses. They could be point income. They could be resource income. They could be end game scoring income. And so just lots of fun, different ways to interact with the board, interact with the stuff that you're playing with. A really cool action selection mechanism, which is this big wheel. Basically, each of the actions you could take, there was like six of them. And there were these tiles on this wheel. And so if you took an action, you would take it and move it over to the next segment of this this pie. It was supposed to represent like a saw blade. You'd move like one of the action tiles to the next segment. The next person took that action tile, they would move it to the next segment, but that would shift kind of a part of this wheel that would open up bonuses for the seg- for the first segment. So essentially, if people kept taking the same actions, it would make the low the less used actions more desirable. You'd get extra bonuses for them. Very similar to uh, Praga Kaput Regni's action selection system, which was this wheel that you took bonuses and then moved the action tiles around. But I felt like this was a big evolution. Uh, Praga Kaput Regni's was okay, did some okay things. This was really fascinating, really tough decisions, really cool bonuses that triggered off of it. Everything about this game was fun to me, and it moved briskly. Uh, I think this is a game that once two or three people know it, you're going to knock this out in an hour to an hour and a half. But you do so many things in it, and it is a really challenging puzzle. The first few rounds of the game, I was just stuck. How am I going to get a two-pip green dice to fill this order? But then you figure out, okay, well, I can get this other thing and then plant it and then turn it into two-pip green dice. Or I can cut this other one in half. Or I can swap this dice for another dice and and get a, a you know a resale value on it. So really cool market. I don't know, playing around with these dice and turning them into the types of resources you need was just super fun for me. So I would love to go back to Woodcraft. This is a game that I am excited to play many more times. Where did you end up finding this one? Were you playing it at a friend's or were you playing it online or? Yeah, I played it at a friend's house. Um, okay. you know, he's he's always got to buy like, hi, Scott. Yeah, I'm talking about you. <laughs> he's got to buy every single new game that comes out as soon as that, which is great for me because I get a chance to play some of these games that are people are excited about. Now, you know, I love Latimer Suchi's designs. Uh, I've talked about him a lot in the past. And this was brilliant. I I suspect, aside from the action selection wheel, it didn't feel like a Vladimir Suchi design. So if I had to guess, I'd, I'd guess that Ross Arnold brought this to Delicious Games and then Vladimir Suchi worked with him on it and probably added some ideas to it. But uh, I really liked this game a lot. And I think I think Ross Arnold did a great job with it. And Vladimir Suchi's touches on it were fantastic as well. This was this was a very cool game. How did this game feel in terms of its heaviness? Because you described it as a very challenging puzzle, but I'm looking at it going, this doesn't look like a super heavy game. There's a lot of stuff going on on these boards, but on BGG, it's rated at a 3.83. That's pretty doggone heavy. Yeah, it feels heavy. I definitely was one of the trickier games for me to wrap my head around the night that I played it. Now, I played it on a night when I was pretty tired, pretty exhausted. And so that might have had something to do with it. By the end of it, I totally got what where I was going and I wanted to play it again. I loved it so much. I was ready to set up and play it again. But it is a tricky game to wrap your head around. It's it's tricky. And it, and the thing about it is, is like it goes fast. Again, you have like 14 turns total. I, fig- I think it's like that 14 or 15 turns. And that's one action per each of those turns. And then there's like three or four uh, little income phases that happen in between those turns. So you're like rushing just to get one or two things done so that you can trigger an income by the first round. And then, you know, you're kind of doing that the whole time. So it's just a constant race to try to get just one little step up and get one more thing completed so that you're ready for that next income phase. So the game felt like you just did not have enough time to fool around. You really had to make smart decisions, start moving in the right direction, get these orders filled quickly. It was pretty heavy, but... Again, not too bad once you got through it. And I felt it was worth it. Like everything you did here felt thematic. I've, I've never felt so much like I was crafting the goods for an order that I was fulfilling than I did in this game. It really it really carried through. The theme carried through in a, a pretty surprising way. You, know, you piqued my interest when you mentioned the art on this one. And I remember seeing this box cover because I think it's been in the, the hotness on BGG for a while. Yeah. I can't exactly say it's unpleasant, but it's weird. Yeah. Like I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I mean, part of it is it's sort of anachronistic in a way. If that I don't know if that's the right word, but I'm looking at a picture here where there is it's this very wood shoppy, old-fashioned, like elfin sort of thing, but there's like a kid wearing a is that a skateboard helmet? And he's got shoes made out of red leaves. I mean, I don't I don't know what's going on here. There's like some weird stuff happening. Yeah. But it's odd. There's green hair, lots of green hair. Yeah, it's very odd. And but again, if you click in like the, the cover is weird to me, but you click into the art and it is the same kind of little abstract, weird character art, but it, on these little cards, it just it works better. And the yeah. the style that was created for making the iconography for the 
the resources works and the the order cards all look like these cool little objects that are well illustrated. I mean, there's like a backgammon table here or a backgammon board and there's like a a bow and arrow. Yeah, I don't know. Like the production worked great for me. I I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Interesting. Well, I've got a bunch of stuff that's been on my table this week, but I'm going to start with one of the games that I had on my list. We discussed last year right around Thanksgiving time theme in board games. And one of the ones that I talked about really wanting to play was Final Girl, published by Van Ryder Games. Interesting system. You have a base game, which is not even a full game. It's just a it's a mechanism set. And then the base mechanism set, you can add on these little components. You add on the episodes. They call them the feature films. And each one is a different... It's basically a ripoff of a different horror movie. There's one called the Camp Happy Trails Horror... That's a ripoff of Friday the 13th. There's one that's like a ripoff of Alien, another one that's a ripoff of uh, Fry, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. So all those kind of things that are going to look very familiar to folks who love those old 80s horror movies. In each one, you are a solo player only. It's a solo only game. And you are the final girl, which is a horror movie trope about the one final girl who survives at the end of the movie and is left fighting the, the villain, the serial killer, and usually ends up winning. And that's your job here. And there is so much tension in this game. Now, I won't talk about it a lot because I actually got this game courtesy of our good friend Riley Stock, who is a a listener of our show and also the host of the board game community show. And I told him that I would come on and I would do a a game review with him on this one because he, he had it. He sent it to me, and I think we had very different takes on it. So I won't say too much about it other than to say there's definitely fun to be had here if you like that theme. And if, it's, if it sounds appealing to you, it's probably going to be pretty appealing. I also had some mixed emotions about it, so I do have more to say on the topic, but I'm going to defer that one until I do that interview, and I'll let you guys know when that's going to be if you're interested in hearing more about it. But I did find it to be a pretty fascinating experience and a real blast from the past, if you remember those movies the way I do. Well, Chris, I have a lot of questions for you about this, but since you want to save your conversation for Riley's show, I'll wait and uh, listen in on that. Maybe I'll get all my questions answered. If not, I'll hit you up at another point. Well, the one other game I want to mention this week, and it's kind of been on my table, but that's Frosthaven. Frosthaven just got delivered to me on Saturday. This is, of course, I've, it's my longest waited awaited Kickstarter. I've been, I think I backed it almost three years ago now. And I know a lot of listeners are still waiting for their copies. Some people have gotten it, but they had, I think, 100 cargo containers full of this game that needed to be distributed across the world. So it's going to be in delivery for a little bit longer here. But I do want to mention my early experience with it, and that's not the gameplay, but it is the punching and organization of this game. Hmm. And I thought it was worth talking about because this is a huge box. It is the largest box I've ever owned. As far as board games go, it beats out the Everdell Complete Collection really by just a little bit. Wow! And that Complete Collection does have a lot of container trays and things like that. Well, this is almost completely stocked from bottom to top with components. So there's some really good things to say about this. Uh, I'll just start there. I was really impressed with the kind of the built-in organization that comes with this game. Uh, it did take me a long time to punch it out separate the components and get it all sorted and organized, but it could have been a lot worse. It was 29 punch boards of fairly thick cardboard. So nice sturdy components so far, several thousand cards, I think that were wrapped a whole bunch, maybe, maybe 15 different types of cards that had to be organized separately and things like that. It took me about three hours to get through this whole process. Now they give you a really nice four page setup guide just with the intent of what you do with the components, how you put them into the storage, how you get them ready for your first gameplay. And that was awesome because this would have been crazy to try to figure out if I didn't have that storage guide. It worked great. I knew exactly what to do. For example, I mentioned there's about 15 types of cards. Uh, There's a pretty nice insert. Uh, There's several inserts in here and many components I haven't even gotten into because there's something like 40 tuck boxes of components that I haven't even opened yet. These are all the different characters you can unlock and extras and stuff. But that stuff was already pre-organized, all sorted in the bottom couple trays. But then there's a big L-shaped tray that goes around the outside of those components. Uh, there's actually two stacked on top of each other, but they have all the cards in there. And they're, they're generally wrapped as you open them up, but you open them up and put them back in the slots. They're well divided. But the bigger, the top card tray has a whole bunch of different types of cards. They tell you which ones to open 
where to put card dividers between them, which ones you want shuffled before the first game, which ones you leave in assorted order because you're going to be you know, looking through them and trying to find the card you want. So I feel like I'm like ready to sit down and play. Now, the biggest challenge with organizing this game was the monsters because there was a ton of them. I think there's got to be 35 or 40 unique monster types in this game. And if you've ever played Gloomhaven or Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, these monster types are represented by standees uh, that are out on these you know hex grids. But each of the monster types generally have between two to six different of those monsters in the game. So when you punch them out, you have to have all these monsters, but you also have their own individual decks of card action cards that they're going to have. Each of them had eight action cards. Each of them has a little token to show their, their priority sequence in the game. And so those they just gave you uh, plastic baggies for. So although the cards had really nice built-in storage, all the components, all the little like tokens, because there's hundreds of little like terrain components and action components that show, you know, what statuses your characters have and all that stuff. They give you nice trays for that. That took a little while to, to punch and sort as well. So there's trays, covered trays, where you can set those in and, you know, you'll, you'll never have to pull those out of baggies or anything. But the monsters, they give you baggies for. The cool thing about that is that when you set up a scenario, you're only going to need two of those monster types typically, like one to maybe three of those monster types. So essentially, you just have this pile of baggies and you just you know, you have to find the right monster type and you just pull those ones out. So it's not too bad from a setup perspective. It does make the the storage, everything else as well organized. Those monsters are just a big pile of baggies on the top of the storage component. There was also something like, I don't know, 30 cardboard board pieces. And Chris, you'd appreciate this from Cthulhu Death May Die, where you have all those like random board pieces in each scenario you have to set up a little bit different. Uh, that's like this here, but they're all just hex boards with some minor differences in the artwork on them. Yeah. So that that's kind of how the setup was. I, I was impressed, to be honest, and after seeing how much content was in there, how many scenario books, how many different character decks there were, how many different, uh, man, there must have been 200 different little um, equipment cards you could earn or purchase or buy or you know pick up during this game, all unique in here. I am not surprised it took them three years. I'm happy to have it now. I'm excited to dig into it. This is a game that I you know, I'm looking forward to, I'll see if I can put together a group and get this done, but I wanted to talk about it now because it may be months before I get a chance to really get into the gameplay very far and be able to talk about that. But I think from a, from a setup, from a storage component, it's, yeah, it's a project. I, it was a fun project for me. I had a nice afternoon uh, and late night digging through and putting all this stuff together. But now I've got this big box that I cannot wait to get my fingers into a little bit further. It may be too early to ask this, but you know there is a thing that concerns me about games like that, these big, heavy, component-riddled adventure games. And I think you know, in my collection, probably the closest one I can think of is maybe Tainted Grail, where there's so much stuff happening in there that it's almost daunting to set it up. That unless you know you're ready to settle in for a long campaign, you, you almost get it's almost daunting thinking about how much work you're going to have to put into unpacking that stuff out of the box and getting it set up. Do you think that's going to be a problem here? Yeah, I think to some extent it will be. Um, now, I played Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion and I get the impression that it's going to be a pretty similar setup, but there's more to go through in the box. They did a pretty good job of, you know, the component trays, the little shits that you need to deal with in the game are mostly going to be straightforward. I think the the heaviest part in the setup is going to be setting up the scenario boards, you know, finding the right components, putting them together. All the the little pieces you're going to put on the board, the obstacles, you know, tree trunks and and chairs and stuff like that. Digging through all that stuff and putting out it's going to take a while. It is going to be heavy. This is a game where you're not going to be like sitting around with some people on game night and someone's going to say, "Let's pull out Frost Haven." No, this is a game <laughs> you're putting together a group and you've got a dedicated night for. And I'll set it up the night before and have fun setting it up. I like that kind of setup. If I decide to just play this solo, that is probably going to be a bit of a barrier for me because, you know, when I have time to play a solo game, it might only be a couple hours. And so if I have to spend an hour and it could, I would expect this is going to be a 30 to 60 minute setup and prep for the scenario type Oof. of thing. That would be really hard for me to do solo. So I, that might get frustrating, but if I can put a group together and we get together, you know, every other week, and get together for one two to three hour scenario i won't mind setting this up but it's going to be a lot it's probably similar to tainted grail yeah oh that's that's a bummer and that can be a real that can be a real barrier to entry yeah it could be but i also could see a lot of fun coming out of this so yeah i'm excited i'm gonna uh, i think i'm gonna put this out i know like 10 or 12 people around this area now that i've played games with and i'm just gonna kind of put it out and see if there's some interest in people getting together if i can get a three to four player group 
together on this every week or every other week. I think there's a lot of fun to be had in this box uh, over the next year or two or three or four or five <laughs> or more. Who knows? <laughs> or more. Um, the other thing that's been on my table this week, it's also been on your table or at least your virtual table, our virtual table. And that's It's a Wonderful World. I think we actually got uh, invited to a game by uh, Caleb, a listener of the show and a good friend of the show who uh, got us started on this one. And it immediately made me think of some comments that you had made, Tim, because you had commented on this one. I think it was in the context of a, of a Kickstarter, one of our Kickstarter episodes. And I think you had some pretty critical things to say about it. So actually, let me pause there. What was it that you said about it? Because I mean, I, I definitely went into it with a slightly negative impression, even though I couldn't remember the specifics of what you had said. No, I actually like It's a Wonderful World. Um, and I liked it when I got it. And I wish that I had had someone to play it with more. Um, I didn't love it as a solo game. And I bought it hoping that my wife would like to play this with me because there was a good two-player drafting mode with it. But uh, she didn't really like it. The thing is, like visually, it's beautiful. Like some of the coolest artwork on the cards, and the cards are large tarot, you know, almost tarot-sized cards. So you get that striking thing. Mechanically, it's fairly dry. You know, you're drafting cards. The drafting's fun, but then you're just cube pushing, like to the, the you know, the the biggest extent of it, right? Like you're turning, you're recycling these cards so you can discard them to get a resource. You put that resource, that little cube. And another card that matches the color, once you build up a cube, then it goes into your engine and that builds more cubes, right? Mechanically, it's kind of dry to play uh, in a way that doesn't always work for me. So I did like it. I, I just didn't love it. And I had bought this huge Kickstarter version of it with all the expansions. It was like $120. And I had this, what is basically a, a light card drafting game. Uh, and I didn't need a $120 version of it. So what I said at the time was that I wish I just bought the retail version for 35 bucks or whatever. And then it might have stuck around in my collection, but I didn't need a huge box of this thing. But yeah, otherwise, no, I, I, I've always enjoyed it enough. Yeah, and I can definitely see why you might not want to spend 120 bucks for a, just a big box of cards. That said, I actually really like this game. I enjoyed it because it is pretty doggone close to pure engine building. Because mm -hmm. every time you, you you're basically drafting these cards... And then you have uh, multiple choices on how you use those cards. And it seems like we have been talking so much recently about multi-use cards. In this case, the multi-use card is you either recycle the card and you get whatever resource the recycling provides. And it tells you there's like five or six different types of resources. Or you build the card. And then that provides some kind of ongoing income, most likely, or potentially end game points. But you may have to recycle certain cards to get the resources you need to build other cards. And then hopefully you're also building up your production so that you're generating the types of resources you're going to need. It's so satisfying to me building these cards and seeing your production go up. And then every round, and there's only four rounds. I actually, if anything, I wish there yeah. was maybe two more rounds yeah, to it. Agreed. But you know, seeing your production go up and then by the end of it, you're like, just you're you're awash in cubes. I mean, it's absolutely uh, amazing. I love that. And the funny thing is, the game it reminds me of a lot, and it happens to be a game that we've been playing recently, is Space Base, where you're basically, I mean, there you're rolling dice and you're coming up with a different production, but you're you're constantly building your production by adding new cards to each number that might come up on a dice roll or up to twelve. In this one, you're just adding those cards as either production or resources, and primarily production. Now, the difference to me between Space Base and this game, because I always have to comment on the production, Space Base is one of the most unpleasant-looking games I think I, <laughs> I've ever seen. And this is one of the coolest-looking games that I think I've ever seen. I don't know where they got the idea for the name It's a Wonderful World. I haven't read the instruction booklet or anything, and so maybe there's a story behind it. But it's this weirdly dystopian. There's like these giant machines doing weird things, and I don't even I don't even know it all. But it's really cool looking, and it's kind of dark and dystopian. And I love looking at these cards. I think it's so cool. Yeah, the production's fantastic, and I think Space Base is a great comparison to bring up here because that's another reason why this game is a little troubling for me. Now, playing it async on Board Game Arena has been awesome, but playing it in person. It just drags because it's only four rounds and there's not a lot of decisions to make. But holy cow, that planning phase after, you know, even drafting, mm -hmm. right, can be slow because you got to look at this hand of seven cards and say, you know, how can I use this card and get it slotted in the right space in my production? And so it creates cubes that I can then use and build another thing that round that will create cubes that will build another thing. 
So once you finish drafting, you get into that construction phase where you're deciding what you're going to construct and what you're going to recycle. That can just, oh man, it, it's just, it, I wouldn't say it drags, but man, my brain just hurts trying to think through it. And I just feel bad about how much time I want to spend thinking through that whole cycle. Now it pays off when you actually get to the production and all of a sudden the first production phase triggers and you see your stuff trickle down. You can start putting on things and wait, who created the most of those gray cubes? Oh, they get a bonus, uh, you know, financier uh, shit that, that they can use for other things or gets or is worth points. And, and that way that the resources are produced over this track, that's the most unique thing about it and the most interesting thing about it, right? It's like, first you do this one and then you can use that to build things that will then produce the black cubes, which are next, and then the green cubes. And that's a really cool cycle. It's just really hard to play in person. If you get seven people around a table, you know, you want a drafting game is great because you can play a, you know, kind of like everyone's making the decision at the same time. But you get one or two people at that table that are just AP prone or just stuck with their decisions. And it's going to take a, a, a long time for a game of this weight. The, the difference with Space Base, since you use it as a comparison, is that there is almost no decision to make. And that's the fun lightness about it, right? So there's a difference there. They're both like, you know, simple, fairly simple rule set engine builders, but It's a Wonderful World is so much thinkier. It's not a necessarily a bad thing, but I do appreciate it on Board Game Arena where we're taking our turns, you know, one every 30 minutes or once an hour or something like that. And I don't have to feel bad if I have to sit there and think for a little bit. And I can do it when I have a five-minute break and, you know, it's not interrupting something else I'm doing. So I like it a lot more, I think, on Board Game Arena than I did in person. But that being said, I think it's a perfectly good game. And I, I'd be happy to play it anytime. I think it's fun. I hadn't thought about it, but the criticism that you make, I think, is a very valid one. And in fact, I can think of times when I started calculating out my next move and then I think about it for five minutes and I go, ah, I just, I just don't want to, I'm not tired of thinking yeah, about exactly. this right now. I'm going to move on. I'm going to come back to this later because yeah. it is one of those, I don't know, depending on how you feel about it, fortunate or unfortunate, it's one of those games where you truly can calculate out, you can math out the perfect solution, but you have to go through every possible iteration yeah. to get to where that is. You know, there were times when I'm just like, I don't feel like thinking about this anymore. I'm just going to pick this card because it looks cool. Yeah, and totally. Then I feel like a big fool because then I'm not <laughs> taking the best turn. But but yeah, I can totally see what you're saying about that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's cool decisions, but it is it's tricky and hard, and sometimes more than I want to put into the brain work in a game. To yeah. you know, to where it stops being fun and starts being math and starts being work, and, yep. and that's kind of where this game can get to. Very good point. But I'm glad we got. I'm glad it's on board game arena, and I'm glad it's you know brought back up in my cycle a little bit. I'm I'm happy to play it there. I expect to do more of it. Yep, it's fun. All right, cool. Well, that will wrap up our conversation on the games we've had on our table this week. Now I did want to call out one listener that left a moderately good review this week. So this is Brian Chandler left a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, Brian's a friend of the show and we love chatting with him sometimes. Uh, but he, he let out the review with the title, Despite My Best Efforts. Now he did give us five stars. He said, I generally disagreed with the premise of this show, immediate response, review after one play, and I love it. They have turned me around to seeing the format's value and more importantly, their friendship shows through in each episode. Weekly Monday releases are a pleasant start to my work week. Highly recommend giving it a try, but this is where it goes downhill. P.S. Tim is the worst of the three. Hey! <laughs> Man, I, I guess best and worst is all really in the eye of the beholder, but I, Brian, you know, I was going to say something snarky, but thank you. <laughs> Brian, thank you for that nice review, and uh, we love your constant harassment. It's uh, it's always fun to see. We also know you don't really mean it. <laughs> <laughs> if you uh, if you enjoy the show, we would love it if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It does help more people find the show. Also, the Board Game Geek Golden Geek Awards are coming up pretty soon, and there is a category for best podcast. So if you enjoy the show, we would love it if you would log into Board Game Geek sometime later this month and give us a nomination. Uh, that would be amazing if, if we could get nominated for a Golden Geek Award this year. But otherwise, until next week... Take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye. Baby, it's cold outside. 